Hanging is one of the most common methods of suicide in the Western world, and the most common in England and Wales. These scenes are awful for everyone involved, as in addition to managing the patient in front of them, ambulance staff often have distraught families or members of the public to support as well. As difficult as this topic can be to both navigate and think about, it's clearly important that we understand the pathophysiology and management of this condition, as these patients are not beyond our help if we can get to them in time. This month we're talking about hangings, and just a small warning, the podcast involves in-depth discussion and descriptions of the pathology of hangings, how they cause cardiac arrest, as well as emotional discussions around supporting family. So just make sure you're in the right headspace for this one. Okay, let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm Simon. And I'm Alex. And this month we are talking about hanging. So, um, Josh, why are we doing this topic? So, sadly, this is something that I'm attending a lot more of in my current role. And uh, at the back end of last year, I went to quite a few hangings in in quick succession. And during our debriefs, there were quite a lot of questions from the crew and and from students uh, about the medicine and and pathophysiology of of this condition. So I I did a bit of personal reflection on on those cases and and wanted to share that with with people in, in this podcast. Hangings are among some of the most tragic jobs that I think we can end up going to as ambulance staff. And and they're those cases that a lot of ambulance staff probably remember very well. And and for people that haven't been to these cases before, I know there's a huge amount of anxiety around dealing with these situations. So th- there were two main reasons that we really wanted to do this podcast, weren't there? That number one, clearly we want to be doing the best for these patients uh, who can respond quite well to treatment in the early stages if we are able to get to them quickly. They're very emotive and pressured situations, so we need to be drilled and confident in what we're doing. And then the second reason is from a self-care aspect. I think one of the best ways to combat fear and anxiety of cases is to mental model them. And so not only by revising this topic are we preparing for what to do at the time, but I think that's also emotionally and psychologically protective for us in the after fact, knowing that we did everything we could. They are always challenging jobs, not necessarily just from the medicine point of view, but also the the situation surrounding them and the effect that it has both on people on people affected and um, and the the people attending the incident as well. So I think this is um, hopefully going to be a really important area to talk about. We've got a lot to cover today, and I think a really good place to start would be the epidemiology of hanging. Sadly, hanging is the most common method of suicide in England and Wales, and it's actually responsible for nearly 60% of deaths from suicide. It's often thought that this method of suicide disproportionately affects males, and whilst it's true that suicide disproportionately affects men, with over 75% of people who die from suicide being male, hanging has been the most common suicide method amongst females since 2013, when it overtook poisoning. It's probably just worth rationalising that a bit 
So hanging is the most common form of death by suicide, which is different from the most commonly attempted form, which is overdose. So with that in mind, this alludes more to the lethality of hanging rather than its frequency. And a number of kind of dated texts now show a 70% lethality to hanging attempts. And whilst that data is old and may not necessarily be accurate these days, the lethality of hanging is still going to be high. Hanging also disproportionately affects young people. And in the 2018 to 2020 period, it accounted for just under 78% of suicides in children aged 10 to 14 years. And that percentage falls steadily as age increases, dropping to about 29% of suicides in the over 90s. When we think about the most common locations of hangings, a 2005 study found that most hanging deaths occur in private households as opposed to institutional settings like custody or hospital. The most commonly used ligatures are ropes, belts or electric cords anchored from things such as banisters or doorknobs. And that point will become important later when we start to talk about pathophysiology. So Alex, I've been quite careful there to say suicide and we've talked about death by suicide but not committed suicide. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about that and the reason why we're not saying committed suicide? Professionals in the suicide prevention field discourage use of the term committed suicide, uh, so we're going to try uh, not to use it. The verb commit when talking about an act is generally reserved for actions that people might view as sinful or immoral. And the act of suicide itself is is almost always the product of mental illness, intolerable stress, pain or trauma. So to portray suicide as a crime stigmatises those who experience suicidal thoughts or attempt suicide. That stigma in itself can deter people from seeking help from friends, family and other professionals. The term completed suicide is sometimes favoured by academics and, and in papers, but it's probably not really the best um it's probably not really the best terminology. So died by suicide probably has fewer implications and is, is less problematic um, in terms of language. I think there's some like really good points raised there and it's stuff to reflect upon because until we started planning for this podcast, I, I've always used the term committed suicide because you know I always thought that was a correct term. It, it shows that we can all reflect and we can all learn yeah, the use of language is, is important. Sometimes people are quite derisive about this sort of thing, about adjusting how we speak about things. But this comes from studies and from, and from help groups uh, and from those who have been bereaved when a relative or someone that they know has, uh, has died from suicide. So anything that we can do to, to help um, make that emotional journey better is um is probably a good thing and i think actually some a lot of people are still surprised to to hear that suicide isn't a crime because there are almost certainly i I, i've met people who who think that suicide is still a crime um and just for just for clarity it's not a criminal act but under Section 2 of the Suicide Act 1961, it does remain a criminal offence for a third party to assist or encourage another to commit suicide. So that brings up a, 
a whole different discussion, which we are absolutely not going to get into uh, right now. But um, yeah, it's it's not a criminal act, and um, we should avoid language that um, that has those connotations. And with that in mind, then shall we move on and shall we talk about the types of hanging, Josh? Yeah, so it's it's probably helpful, isn't it, to clarify some of the terminology that we're going to be using and and some of the situations that we could potentially uh, encounter. So before we start looking at the pathophysiology, it's probably worth defining the types of hanging that exist and some of the terms that we're going to be uh, using and, and, and potentially um, encountering. So I think what most people probably think about when you say hanging is is judicial hanging. So it's the method of execution that has been used as, as, as part of capital punishment. And people often talk about hangman's fractures and things like that. So so where does that come from? Well, hangman fractures come from a type of judicial hanging called a long drop hanging that was uh, practiced in the 1800s. And the the purpose of this type of hanging is is that they thought it was more humane um, because the the aim of the long drop was to break prisoners' necks and make the whole process much quicker. So what they would do is they they calculate prisoners' weights and adjust the length of rope to to change the drop. And the drop, for context, would be somewhere between four and eight feet. So it's quite a long drop with the noose positioned under the chin. What that would result in is a sudden hyperextension of the head, theoretically fracturing the neck either between the C2 and C3 or C3 and C4 from from the impact force of the noose. And that was classically described as a hangman's fracture. Now, I say that theoretically caused the fracture there because a number of evidence sources have looked at postmortems of executed prisoners um, who've been hanged and found that very few instances, uh, one study found that less than 20% of these hangings actually had a fracture at all. So the cause of death in these instances is more likely to be a combination of either vertebral artery dissection or rupture uh, from the from the significant force applied to the neck, all causes linked to the types of hanging that we're going to discuss in a second. Uh, so the cases of hanging that we're more likely to see in our roles it could be a short drop, complete suspension hanging. So this is where the ligature is suspended from a high feature and there's an act of stepping off or kicking away an object such as a chair. So there's a there's a small drop associated with that, but it's, it's nowhere near the, the, the sort of four to eight feet I've just described. A lean-in partial suspension hanging. So this is where the ligature is usually suspended off a feature at head height, so off the back of a door, and there's a, an act of bending or dropping of the knees to instigate the pressure around the individual's neck or potentially accidental autoerotic asphyxia which is generally either going to be a lean in partial suspension hanging or there's going to be an act of manual constriction uh, around the neck so those are the instances we potentially might come across let's have a think about what's happening during that and and how these methods go on to cause cardiac arrest because it's important that we understand what's happening so that we're appropriately able to understand what we see when we see these patients and direct our management appropriately. So I've been looking at some articles from Sauvageu et al. and the Working Group on Human Asphyxia, which aims to examine what the process of cardiac arrest looks like in hanging by examining videos of hanging events and reporting the features that were involved. 
they found some distinct phases during the hanging process. First, there's a rapid loss of consciousness. So in the 14 or so videos that they observed across their two papers that were linked to on the website, and it's accepted that, okay, this is a small amount of cases that we're talking about here, but there was considerable similarity between all of the events that they observed. There was rapid loss of consciousness in around 10 seconds. So this occurs from compression of the vascular structures in the neck. The brain becomes rapidly anoxic and so consciousness is lost. This is then followed by a brief episode of convulsions and then decerebrate followed by decorticate posturing as the brain becomes gradually more hypoxic. By about 20 seconds into the event, the authors report deep agonal breath attempts and crucially here they report that they were able to hear air movement in nearly all of the videos. So this suggests that there isn't complete tracheal occlusion from hanging which was previously thought to be one of the mechanisms uh, of, of, of cardiac arrest. There is obviously an element of airway obstruction as the soft tissue structures in the neck and the oropharynx are pushed upwards and the head drops forwards. So the airway isn't open, but the notion that the trachea is completely compromised is probably not correct. Respiratory effort stops around two minutes and in the majority of cases, movement was reported to stop at around the three to four minute mark. So it's thought that it probably takes around three or so minutes for cardiac arrest to occur. Okay, Josh, so what is the actual mechanism that causes the cardiac arrest? Yeah, so it's a good question, and it's still not entirely certain because there's all of the drawbacks and flaws of uh, the observational approach to this case. But from from what they observed and using a little bit of clinical knowledge, we, we can probably make a good assumption of, of what's happening. So as I've said, the loss of consciousness occurs very quickly and that is the compression of the structures in the neck. So it causes cerebral anoxia uh, and possibly intracranial hemorrhaging depending on the pressure and the forces involved. Cardiac arrest then, as we know, probably takes about three-ish minutes or thereabouts to occur. Well, that 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 is more than likely caused by hypoxic myocardium so as i've as i've described the trachea isn't completely occluded so it, it sounds like there is still air movement possible uh, from the agonal gasps but there is an airway compromise this is an unconscious patient with very restricted upper airway structures and the heads dropped forward so they don't have an open airway so the pathology here is a hypoxic cardiac arrest which i'm sure most people uh would have assumed to be the case. Now, there's a question whether or not there's a vagal impact or a vagal element here, and there's really no way to prove it one way or the other. Obviously, there's a huge amount of compression around the neck, so compression of the carotid sinus will enervate the baroreceptors uh, in the neck, in the in the carotid arteries, and that will result in a vagal stimulation. So you get a bradycardia and a vasodilation. And there's some school of thought that this has an effect at uh, mediating the patient to go into cardiac arrest. As, as I say, there's, there's a bit of debate one way or the other, but we know these patients, when we get to them, are often very bradycardic. Now, is that the hypoxia? Is that a vagal response? Who knows? But but there's possibly that element at play as well, and we should probably bear that in mind, which which is potentially useful when we come on to talk about the post-ROS care of these patients. 
So it would probably be fair to say then that actually not just hangings, but kind of in similar situations with a similar pathology, such as manual strangulation uh, and positional asphyxia would likely cause the same pattern uh, of deterioration into cardiac arrest. Would you would you agree with that, Josh? Yeah, exactly. So that that's how I mentally model this. Um, the majority of, of hangings that we see, it is more a strangulation or asphyxial uh, type cardiac arrest rather than the type of trauma, quote unquote, that some people get worried about. And this would probably be a good time to have a chat about spinal injuries in hanging. So Simon, is this a valid concern? I think to a lot of ambulance clinicians, that is a concern. I suppose we need to consider how much of a concern that is. So I think most people would consider kind of your traditional hangman's fracture, as you noticed earlier, which is a spondylolisthesis of the axis, or C2, which occurs with significant hyperextensive forces from judicial-type hangings. However, as we've already alluded to, uh, judicial type hangings and those kinds of drops and mechanisms are actually a lot rarer outside of that environment. And what we've actually found is the incident of C-spine injury in the short drop hangings or the lean-to hangings is actually pretty low. A 2014 study which examined uh, post-mortems of hanging victims demonstrated about a 3.3% incidence of spinal injury. And this was again uh, supported in a 2019 retrospective review by Burke, Helmut and Han, who found that um, when looking at 254 CT and MRI scans of patients who um, had uh, hangings or near-hanging events traumatic injuries were actually quite low and they only found eight injuries and only two of those were cervical spine injuries. Whereas anoxic brain injury was diagnosed clinically in 35.7% of patients and of the 19 patients that died, all of those had an anoxic brain injury. So what this paper shows us is that actually people aren't dying of cervical spine injuries or indeed traumatic injuries they are dying of the anoxic brain injury and the pathology that we mentioned above so to kind of settle that question spinal injury seems low risk i think the things that we need to think about are risk factors that may lead us more to the presence of c-spine injury being more likely And we can take this a little bit further. So that 2014 study that I mentioned went on to say that risk factors that make a C-spine injury more likely include anterior placement of the ligature knot because it causes loop pressure and more hyperextension of the neck. And if the patient is over the age of 65, for obvious reasons such as osteoporosis, reduced collagen, reduced flexibility and silver trauma. And obviously, whilst not mentioned in that study, we also need to think about significant mechanism of injury as in a fall from a height. So if we've got a a hanging that is much more in keeping with that judicial style of injury fall from a significant height, then we might want to consider spinal mobilization. But I think the most important thing is that we don't get too overly worried about C-spine injuries in most of these hanging patients. 
And quite personally, I would forgo a C-spine collar and treat the hypoxic brain injury and minimize any second brain injury as my treatment priority. Yeah, I agree with that, mate. Um, we'll, we'll come on to talk about it a bit more in, in post-ROS care. But as you've identified from, from that evidence, principally these patients have a, a brain injury and uh, it's way more likely that they're going to have a brain injury, far less likely that they're going to have a neck injury. So the majority of our, our care should be to try and optimize and minimize secondary brain injury. So it's quite clear then from the evidence and the studies that you've just been talking about that the vast majority of uh, hangings that we are likely to see, certainly in the UK, are most likely going to be hypoxic in origin. But before we get on to management, I think it's worth acknowledging a couple of things. Now, obviously, there is the chance that we may see a long drop. Certainly, I I have seen and am aware of some instance uh, within my own career of of that. But also, even with some some of the shorter drops, I think something that we have to bear in mind before we start looking at management is the principles of working at height. What we have to remember here is that we have to protect, I hate to use the term, but we have to think a little bit about dynamic risk assessment in these cases because we it's very important that we reduce the risk of falling from a height for ourselves and for any other personnel at a scene. Particularly if you are dealing with a, uh, a case of a long drop, but also to bear in mind, and it's a, there's not really a nice way to say this, but a suspended body uh, is a heavy weight even a person who has a low body weight when they are fully suspended is going to have a lot of potential energy and we should be cautious about how we are cutting people down and we need to at least bear in mind that this is the people who are suspended are much much heavier than they look so it's always a good idea to consider the use of additional assets such as fire and rescue heart or search and rescue who are trained and equipped to employ safe systems at work if there is any degree of working at height and i i know you know people listening will probably think oh those assets might take some time to get there but i think you're completely right alex we have to remember that scene safety is always the utmost priority um, over anything else so yeah i think that's really well said yeah, it's also there's there's also a degree of dignity involved in that as well, which I think is really important. Regardless of the outcome, we want to preserve dignity wherever possible. So on off off the back of that then, since we're talking about cutting people down if they are found suspended, sh- shall we talk briefly then about near hangings? So I think these are important to mention if a patient um, has been kind of stopped before they've had a hanging attempt or if they have had a short hang and they've been cut down and they're conscious on the arrival of the crew. So these are really important. So if the patient has actually had a ligature around their neck and has had any degree of suspended time, they they have to be conveyed to an emergency department. There is a high risk of delayed airway swelling and laryngeal injury, which kind of must be monitored in the emergency department. And then we will probably admit uh, overnight for 24 hours uh, to keep a really close eye on that patient and their airway. 
can I Furthermore, can I just clarify there, Simon? Sorry. Yeah. You, you, you said for a patient who's had um, a ligature around their neck and has had a degree of suspension. I, I, I assume that we're including in that any degree of sort of essentially pressure. So if it is a lean in type, not not sim- not not just a, a full body suspension, but also a, a, a lean in with sort of significant pressure against the neck structures. So that's it's a really good point to clarify. So anyone who's had any pressure through a ligature in their neck, even if it seems trivial, even if it seems minor, I strongly advise people to to convey because you know there have been delayed episodes of needing airway management within the next twenty four hours. So it's a really good good point to to hit home that you know we should be bringing these people into an emergency department. And following on from that, if they've been stopped before uh, they've managed to make a hanging attempt or even someone who's threatened a hanging attempt, we really need to take these patients somewhere for a mental health assessment. Hanging or the suggestion of hanging and suicidal ideation from that method and that plan is really high risk because it's such a, a kind of violent and deliberate and considered approach to that thought process it's really important these patients get assessed yeah all really important points to consider as you said simon we we are going to very tightly focus on on the medical management of of hanging in this podcast so let's move on to talking about the steps that we're going to be taking for a patient that's uh, that that is either still hanging or uh, has has recently been cut down and they're they're unwell. So one of the things that lots of people might be aware of is where you cut the ligature, and and all of the cases that I've been to, the patient's already been re- released from the the ligature uh, by whoever made the call. So I've never had to do this. Have, have either of you guys had to cut the ligature? Yeah, sadly I have actually. It's um. It's quite an unpleasant experience. And it's interesting that you bring this up because I actually was questioned by the police afterwards about how I cut the ligature. And I was like, well, d- does it does it matter? And the feedback from the police was, yeah, that it actually is really important about how that ligature is cut and the forensics around that. Yeah, so I've spoken to some colleagues in the police and in forensics. And... Um, yeah, so it, it, it is actually really important. Apparent death by suicide will be subject to a varying degree of investigation depending on the circumstances, but they should all be reviewed by CID before being ruled a suicide. And actually, they will often have a similar level of investigation to to a homicide in the sense that they will have a full data download from phones. They'll investigate the source of ligatures if that is uncertain and when the person was last seen and by whom. So really, it's really good advice to to treat a a scene. If if you're attending a hanging, it's really good advice to treat it as a crime scene. So limit exposure and your time on scene. And a really important question that we have to ask is, if this isn't a working job, do you actually need to be in the scene? And if you don't need to be in the scene, then leave. Where possible, we should try to limit to one point of access and egress so that we're disturbing as little as possible. And a really nice tip is to wear two pairs of gloves. Um, The reason for that is it means that the top pair, if necessary, the top pair could be taken as evidence without the problem of sweat degradation from, from, obviously, from your hands. 
really our aim is to preserve the scene wherever possible. So situational awareness really comes into this in a big way. The location of items and so, you know, if, if it is a, a short drop and the, the person has taken a step from a chair or a stool, what we need to try and do where possible is to, to disturb that situation as little as possible uh, i will put the caveat in there and i don't think anybody from the forensics or the police world will disagree that you know we sh- we should move whatever we need to move to to try and save life but if where possible we should try not to disturb things and also just to have an awareness of other things around us you know the presence of drugs alcohol other people that might be in the property and if if at all possible what the patient was wearing the presence of footprints perhaps if you're outside was the door locked we also need to be aware of the forensic implications when we're removing patients clothing and again that's not to say that we shouldn't remove patients clothing but we should avoid cutting them off and throwing them into the clinical waste for example because that is evidence and coming back there simon to what you uh, mentioned in the first place around cutting the ligature i think personally it is a really good idea for people to to carry or have access to a ligature cutter rather than using tough cuts simply because they are slightly easier to use in the context because that's what they're designed for they 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 tough cuts by their design can be difficult to get into the right position but whatever you've got works but yeah i personally think a ligature cutter is a good idea so the best place to cut is what they call the bite of the of the ligature, which is which is the loop, uh, in sort of layman's terms, and, and absolutely to avoid damage to the knot. There's all sorts of reasons for that, which probably aren't really appropriate to go into or necessary to go into. But the the bite is going to be easier. They they generally advise that you try and get up underneath the angle of the jaw, simply because there is a bit more room there. Bearing in mind that you, you potentially are going to have to be supporting the person's weight at the same time. For that reason, the the standing what we what we would call the standing part, the sort of vertical part of the ligature, is going to be under quite a lot of load and is going to be difficult to cut. So, really, the aim here, when when you are cutting someone down from a sort of forensic, uh, evidentiary point of view, is to try and disturb the ligature um, as little as possible, whilst obviously um, getting the person out of it. See, th- this is all really good information and and i've learned a lot there alex so thanks for that this is the reason that we're doing this podcast isn't it so that we're aware of this information should we find ourselves confronted with with this situation and another area that we have to consider when we are talking about cutting people down is futility versus salvageability so you are walking into until proven otherwise you are walking into a potential crime scene and I have been to incidents where, for for very good reason, the first person into the room from a from a response point of view uh, has found a patient suspended and has cut them down, despite the fact that the patient had obvious signs which were incompatible with life, the, the presence of post mortem lividity and and rigor mortis. Now I'm fully aware that you know these jobs are very emotionally charged and they go in a blur um you know you don't necessarily have a a huge amount of time to think about your first steps when you go into the room 
But it is worth giving some consideration to the fact that if this is a patient who has those signs of incompatible with life, then it may be better in the long run to 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 leave them in situ from an evidentiary point of view. Although it feels it doesn't feel that we're providing the patient with a lot of dignity to perhaps leave them where they are, sometimes that is the best choice if it is very clear that um, this is this is going to be a futile resuscitation. Okay, so we've we've arrived onto the scene. We've given consideration to the scene safety elements, the working at height elements that you've described, Alex, and we've considered uh, as best we can the preservation of the scene. We've decided that this is a potentially salvageable situation and it wouldn't be futile to try to resuscitate the individual. So uh, so we've released them from the ligature, not by cutting the knot, but by cutting the, the bite or the loop that's around the neck. And the patient is now supine on the floor, ready to be resuscitated. I don't think it's helpful to go through the ins and outs of ALS management. Most people are going to be very happy with that. And this isn't an ALS podcast. But should we have a little conversation around some of the management elements that we may need to give particular credence to or perhaps some adjustments whilst we're resuscitating this patient? Yeah, so as you both have covered already, the mechanism behind this cardiac arrest is most likely to be hypoxic in origin, plus or minus perhaps some vagal tone. What we need to be doing is treating this primarily as a hypoxic arrest. So the patient may be in VF if it's very early stage, if they, if it's been a, a short time of suspension, but they are more likely to be in a PEA or an asystolic rhythm. So we need to prioritize good airway interventions and consider early activation of additional assets, including extended scope, uh, if they're not already en route to you. Because really what we need to be aiming for here, uh, sort of gold standard wise, would be intubation. Yeah, so that that's what all the texts say, isn't it? That these patients should have intubation prioritised as part of their resuscitation. And, and that is accurate, that is true, because particularly if we get a ROSC, these patients may start to develop some airway edema and, and, uh, and swelling from that ligature. But... The key is, as you've said, Alex, is prioritise really good airway interventions and really good airway management, which is absolutely doable with an eye gel. So uh, I, I just, yes, get uh, additional assets on the way, but it's not like if you can't tube this person, you can't do some really, really beneficial things, doing really good airway management and, and optimising their airway and ventilating and oxygenating them is the key. It, it, it's not all about getting the tube in. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And airway is something that is obviously going to be really important, but also we have to think about what's going on in the lungs, don't we, Josh? Because there's there's issues around pulmonary edema um, with hangings. Is that right? Yeah, so you can get something called negative pressure pulmonary edema. So as, as I described earlier, where these patients have had a, a period of time where they are breathing against an occluded airway the negative pressure that that generates can cause pulmonary edema to uh, to to enter the lungs i'm not entirely certain what timelines we're working with here i can't say i've ever seen it intra arrest in these patients and i think it's it's potentially something that will develop 
further on down the line and become a problem more when we're talking about ITU and things like that. It, it is something that's uh, in a reasonable amount of the literature and, again, is another benefit of, of patients having uh, an ET tube. Yeah, it is normally um, in late ED, early ITU times that we see this kind of um, pulmonary edema develop and then eventually it will lead to an acute respiratory stress syndrome. But that is normally uh, further down the line um, in this patient's care. So apart from airway interventions, we also need to have a think about getting early IV access as soon as practicable. And I personally have a low threshold for using alternative sites or intraosseous. Uh, obviously, alternative sites are going to be somewhat limited. We're not really going to be able to think about um, jugular cannulation in this context for, for the majority of these patients. But other other sites that may be suitable or intraosseous access, because adrenaline in these patients is going to be quite high priority because they are hypoxic in origin. So they are going to be most likely in a PEA, which may respond quite well to adrenaline. Another really uh, crucial piece of advice is to be prepared for an early ROSC. You want to organise your egress early and have the equipment nearby. You don't want to be in the situation of having a ROSC. In other cardiac arrest situations, it's expected that there will be a period of around 10 minutes um, following the ROSC where the patient doesn't really move. Uh, so we've got lots of time to think about egress, getting OBS and, and getting equipment ready. But the thing to remember in these cases is that if the patient gets a ROSC, they have a hypoxia, a pretty profound hypoxia, uh, plus or minus brain injury, and they may be combative. And you don't want to be in the situation of having a potentially increasingly combative, confused, hypoxic patient and trying to get them organised in terms of egress. So if you can get that organised and planned as early as possible, uh, not whilst you're mid arrest perhaps but if, if there is a spare person that you can you can ask to do that and to look at that and to make those plans that will certainly make things easier as uh, as things go along yeah it's it's all about preparing and anticipating that that rosk isn't it so in my experience these patients either the resuscitation is is futile and and, and it's quite clear when that is is happening but there's a certain subset of these patients when the timeline works that they respond very well to our resuscitation and and it doesn't take that long to reverse the hypoxia one of the things i often say when we're debriefing them is is these patients were very physically healthy to start with and it's just this incident that caused hypoxia primarily to the brain and to the heart as soon as we start to reverse that then it's almost like a sort of exponential curve in their recovery sometimes. So when your resuscitation is is well established, it's all about looking for those signs and anticipating that ROSC. So uh, a lot of the time I'll be looking at the, the rhythm assessment if, if they're starting to tacky up. So we started at a, an asystole or a very slow wide braddy and they're now tackying up or that the end tidal is starting to spike. It's, it's looking like our resuscitation is working and we, we can start to anticipate a ROSC. So it's that's the time then to start thinking about egress. And, and once you have a ROSC, absolutely, we do need to optimise it. And that is a little bit about what that waiting 10 minutes is for. 
But as you say, Alex, we don't want to be hanging around causing any unnecessary delays because if this patient's upward trend continues going upwards, then we really don't want them to be getting agitated and combative whilst we're trying to get them on a scoop or even worse, whilst we're halfway down the staircase, something like that. I think the only other thing to to really bring up in terms of cardiac arrest management, although this is starting to move into uh, post-ROSC management, but is concurrent overdose. A study by Penny Stewart and Parr in 2002 found that up to 70% of their study participants had concurrent drug or alcohol use, and that may be relevant, particularly as we're coming on to post-ROSC care. And and on that subject, actually, I was going to ask both Josh and Simon, do you think in your experience that patients who have been hanging are potential candidates for either a FIA or potentially an RSI at hospital? Yeah, absolutely. So, So these are the group of patients that can respond very well to a fear because as we said in our fear podcast episode what that allows us to do is optimize that post-ROS care even better optimize their ventilation optimize their oxygenation i think one potential caveat to that is sometimes particularly if there's short downtimes involved and the hypoxic insult may be less sometimes teams will elect to if a patient looks like they're wanting to wake up sometimes it might be reasonable to see if they want to wake up and 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 to to see how quickly they will recover so it's not a barn door yes they they're going to have an anesthetic if uh, if you get a rosc sometimes it might be appropriate to see with additional oxygenation and and uh, uh optimized post rosc care whether or not they will recover to uh, a, a normal mentation but that is a select few cases. I'd second that point. Um, so in hospital, we would probably, uh, if patients were mentating really well, we might kind of let them recover with the caveat that if we felt that the injury to the neck was of sufficient degree that there may be uh, edema and a risk of losing the airway again later down the line, we may choose to do an earlier RSI in order to secure the airway definitively to prevent that risk. The patient is likely going to be going to ITU. <laughs> Nearly all of them will be going to ITU. So yes, I think a tube is extremely likely in most of these patients. So then let, let's talk about post-ROSC care. So hopefully this, these patients will respond to our resuscitation and, and we may end up with quite a rapid ROSC. Again, this isn't a post-ROSC care podcast, although we probably should do one of those. So I'm not going to go into talking about full post-ROSC syndrome and, and the theories uh, behind the entirety of post-ROSC care. What we'll do is just highlight some of the things that we want to make sure we're doing extra well based on what we know is the uh, underlying pathology for these patients. So all post-ROSC patients will have an element of hypoxic brain injury. These patients, especially, as we've been saying, will have a significant hypoxic brain injury and and, uh, treating hypoxia really is the mainstay of our care here. So essentially what we should be doing is uh, treating these patients as we would any other brain injury and try to minimize secondary brain injury because their brain will be becoming edematous uh, as a result of the hypoxia and they'll have an element of increased ICP. So we need to make sure they're oxygenated. 
that means avoiding hypoxia. And if these patients don't have an advanced airway adjunct in situ, if we're just using face mask ventilation, if, it, if they really had that smaller downtime, we should give consideration to whether or not we need to put them onto a high flow mask because BVMs for spontaneously breathing patients can be quite difficult for them to get appropriate tidal volumes. So that's a judgment that we need to make based on how compliant the patient is and how intrinsic their own respiratory drive is. And we need to be titrating SATs for somewhere between 95 and 98% because we also want to avoid hyperoxia because we know hyperoxic post-ROSC patients have reduced coronary and cerebral blood flow as a result of that. And there's there's some suggestion that hyperoxia, so a high level of PaO2, may reduce tissues consumption of oxygen. So, so we want to ensure that we're avoiding that and aiming for normal saturation values. As we've already kind of alluded to, I would probably not put a colour on these patients. One, because we know that there's a low risk for cervical spinal injury. But even if it was one of those cases where I would like to apply spinal precautions, I'm, I'm going to avoid a collar because what we know they do is decrease venous drainage from the head. They can increase intracranial pressure. They can decrease mouth opening. And we already are worried that this patient may have some edema or hematomas be starting to develop around their airway. We really don't want to put any more uh, restriction in unnatural places. So I'd be happy to avoid a collar and I'd be trying to keep these patients roughly 30 degrees heads up to aid venous drainage and, and, and hopefully minimise intracranial pressure. We want to keep these patients cool. Again, we don't actively cool these days, do we? But uh, ensuring that these patients don't develop a pyrexia is, is important in ROSC patients, but particularly important when patients have have a have a brain injury to this degree and then the other thing that we want to be considering is reducing cerebral metabolic demand for oxygen as we've said a little bit it's highly likely that these patients may have a degree of agitation and it's very useful if you can have somebody with you that can either perform an anesthetic or somebody that can administer some sedation because if these patients are agitated if they're screaming if they're trying to move a lot one that's incredibly unpleasant for them but two they're using up valuable oxygen reserves from uh, the, the movement and the innervation of their muscles as well as having a huge amount of brain activity ongoing which uh, can worsen secondary brain injury so we want to reduce that cerebral metabolic oxygen demand and even if you can't uh, sedate these patients one of the things that we should consider is whether there's a pain component to their agitation so it, it's absolutely appropriate to give these post-ROSC patients cautious doses of morphine in an attempt to get on top of pain if you think uh, that might be responsible for agitation I guess the other thing that we should talk about in the post-ROSC care of these patients is blood pressure control because in my experience they generally end up quite bradycardic and they can be quite hypotensive and I know most people will generally reach for fluids in response to hypotension. And it's probably not unreasonable to try a fluid challenge, so 500 mils or so. Most post-ROSC patients will respond quite well to, and, and, that can, and that can help to get on top of myocardial stunning. But really what we should be thinking about is post-ROSC adrenaline. So one in 100,000 aliquots of adrenaline will help get on top of that bradycardia and will help increase systemic vascular resistance and, and uh, 
blood returning to the heart. In all of these patients, one of the first things that I end up asking a colleague to do uh, when we've got a ROSC is can you draw up the post-ROSC adrenaline because I anticipate that I'm going to be using it at some point in the care for these patients to get them to hospital. So that's the majority of, uh, of, of post-ROSC care. Should we have a quick chat about initial GCS? Because I was a bit uncertain as to whether or not that is indicative of prognostic outcome. Yeah, the evidence doesn't seem to be entirely clear. Uh, there was a study in 2002 which demonstrated that nearly 90% of hanging victims who uh, reached hospital alive survived with a low incidence of poor neurological outcome and that GCS at the scene and on admission was a poor prognostic indicator of outcome. However, there has been subsequent studies uh 2004, 2019, 2021 by obviously different people that have shown that um, initial Glasgow coma scale was a significant indicator uh, of um, poor neurological outcome. So it's not entirely clear, but I think a really, a really important point to take away from that initial 2002 study 90% of those patients who had been hanging who reached hospital alive survived. And for that reason, GCS, whether that's your initial presentation at scene or GCS post-ROSC or GCS on arrival at hospital, is is not a reliable prognosticator, let's say, of neurological outcome. And therefore, we should feel justified in taking a more aggressive resuscitation and management strategy. So we're just about reaching the the end of this conversation. Something that we haven't really talked about yet is the scene and particularly managing the other people that are on these scenes because they can be really understandably chaotic scenes, can't they? Very difficult and emotive because often there is next of kin or family on scene who may have found the uh, the, the, the patient in situ so have, have you guys got any particular advice points about how to manage these very difficult situations yeah indeed when when we do these podcasts we often look at things in a kind of linear uh you know start to finish fashion don't we and and scene management this is one of those things that happens um alongside really the medical management because you're absolutely right josh these can be really emotive and and very difficult scenes for lots and lots of reasons in my role now i tend to be less involved in the medical side and um more involved in in this aspect of things as as you alluded to there can be all sorts of people um at these scenes you you can have family members or relatives or friends or, or even just passers-by potentially people who have found them been involved you know you're going to have the presence of of police potentially senior police if you're sort of looking at cid and that sort of thing uh there may be the fire and rescue service all sorts of people there and in my experience one of the one of the key things here is to firstly to separate people who need to be there due to a close connection to the patient uh, from people who are there for for other reasons who perhaps don't need to be there and it's really really important that we start the process of looking after these people suicide and 
well, not just suicide, but but hanging, whether that be near hanging or death by suicide, has a ripple effect which extends well beyond the person's immediate family and friends. And the responses that people will have, particularly to a suicide, are, are very complex and they can be extremely painful for those uh, involved. So it might be really useful for us to be able to signpost those people who are affected. And that includes not not just people who who know the person but ourselves as well these these are incidents that can have a very profound effect on responders and staff and police officers and anyone else who's involved yeah it can be really helpful to be able to have some some help and support one situation which i have experienced unfortunately a few times is to be on scene and the patient's phone uh, is ringing because someone, be that a family friend or, or anyone, um, has realised that something's wrong and they're ringing over and over and over again. And that's firstly quite distressing uh, on scene, but also it puts people in the position of having to decide sometimes whether or not to answer that phone call. And I have seen both sides of that. From my own personal perspective, I would suggest that if you can avoid answering that phone call, that is probably the best way, simply because it may be that the outcome is not yet determined, uh, and it may be that um, there are, you know, if if you are in some sort of institution, be that a an army barracks or a prison, anything like that, there will almost certainly be mechanisms in place to um appropriately inform people who are, do, don't already know um the police also have uh, specially trained family liaison officers who can be involved in that and that that discussion can be very distressing uh, not only for the person receiving it but also sometimes for the person making it so if if you are in that situation where the patient's phone is ringing i personally would avoid answering it if possible. And on the subject of self-care for these incidents that, you know, caring for yourself afterwards and also for your colleagues, make sure that you get a debrief, whether that is from a senior clinician or whether that is from some sort of operations manager or the the scene officer or, or even just amongst yourselves. I, I feel very strongly that nobody should leave any scene that that is potentially traumatic, but particularly uh, an incident of of hanging, whatever the outcome. Nobody should feel uncertain or that they have questions which could be answered, which have been left unanswered. And take note and care of your colleagues and know how and when to escalate concerns. You know, make use of support networks and and speak to managers. And also, you know, if if you are going through a difficult time or if in the aftermath of one of these incidents you you are struggling, there are people out there that can help. You can make GP alerts, perhaps for relatives or or possibly even colleagues, just to make the GP aware uh, with the person's permission that they may be in need of support, particularly if it is a bereavement, then the GP may be able to offer some, um, some support in that respect. I think when we think of debriefs, a lot of the time, most people think of, oh, 
you know, that's the conversation about, oh, what do we do well? What could we done better? But actually, that's not what we're referring to in this case. We're referring to exploring how people are, are feeling about a job, any kind of concerns in their mental health and their well-being. And I think that's really important to explore, not just in a hot debrief, but in a cold debrief. And it's something that um, in EDs we've just started to do. So that if um, anybody wants a debrief, all they have to do is ask for it. And then one of us, uh, myself and, and some of my colleagues uh, who are trained to, to run these debriefs will arrange that with, with everyone that was there where possible. My last point I would just add from my perspective is if we kind of said earlier that, you know, young people uh, have a high prevalence of, of hanging and suicide. If uh, a child hanging is uh, a workable job, even if it's looking futile once you've started, it may be a good idea to convey that person, especially if uh, carers or parents are on scene because emergency departments are probably um, a more supportive place to break bad news and be able to provide immediate support to those parents. So it's just a consideration for for children uh, who might um, unfortunately have, have um, had this event. Yeah, I would definitely second that because particularly in the case of paediatric hanging, whether that be a near hanging or or death by suicide that in itself becomes an entire an entirely separate process around um around safeguarding and and child death which which isn't really what we're here to talk about today but yeah i i would absolutely second that point and also just to talk about the the cumulative effect that these things can have um particularly on on us as clinicians and just that there's no there there is no shame in that you know it is something that's being talked about more now but it's not something that we have talked about previously as far as i'm aware but these incidents do sometimes come back and that's okay and there are people there that can help you so please do make use of your colleagues and those around you and um the support mechanisms and and counseling or trim that you that you may have available to you in your organization and other resources that are there there will be lots linked on our website but um if you ever need them you can text the samaritans um if you text shout to 85258 and also, you, you may or may not be aware that the ambulance service charity Task uh, have an ambulance staff crisis phone line, which you can contact on 0300 373 0898. And they will put you in contact with a qualified counsellor or a person trained in uh, CAMS, which is Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. The task crisis phone line is fully independent from your employer. Um, so unless there is a risk that they professionally have to share or escalate, it will be fully confidential and, you know, your, your employer won't, um, won't be involved in that discussion. So there's really nothing to worry about in that respect. So the help is there. And, and if you're going through a hard time or if you know someone that's going through a hard time, um, please do make use of it.
Hanging is the most common form of suicide in the UK, especially in males and the younger population. This means that ambulance clinicians are likely to be exposed at some point in their career to cases of hanging. Hanging can rapidly lead to cardiac arrest, and the mechanism of this involves loss of consciousness from compression of neck structures, and anoxia, which will eventually lead to a hypoxic myocardium. Contrary to common belief, C-spine injuries are rare, unless a long drop mechanism of injury is involved, and whilst we should always consider the possibility of a C-spine injury, this shouldn't prevent from more important management and care. When cutting down patients found hanging, we need to ensure that we cut the bite of the ligature in the loop and not the knot itself for forensic reasons. Remember, life preservation is always the priority, but we should do what we can to preserve scene integrity. We should manage patients in cardiac arrest with a standard ALS approach. It's more than likely there's going to be a hypoxic reversible cause, which can cause VF early, but it's often PEA and asystole that we'll find these patients presenting in. We should always give consideration to mixed etiologies of cardiac arrest, such as a concomitant overdose. Good airway management and oxygenation is essential to care. Consider requesting additional assets such as critical care for intubation or the possible need for a surgical airway. However, in the main, simple adjuncts and eye gels will be more than sufficient, especially in the early cardiac arrest phase of care. We should gain early IV or IO access and give adrenaline early, as patients in asystole or PEA are likely to respond well to this. We should be prepared for an early ROSC and plan our egress accordingly. If ROSC is achieved, we should provide oxygen, maintain SATs between 95 and 98%, avoid C-spine collars, raise the head 30 degrees, prevent high temperatures development, and ensure that we're minimising cerebral metabolic oxygen demand. This may require sedation or a fear for agitated patients. These patients will often be bradycardic and hypotensive in the early stages of ROSC. We should use fluids cautiously due to the risk of developing pulmonary edema. Instead, we can consider the use of post-ROSC adrenaline, as this is particularly useful in these ROSC patients. We need to give consideration to the emotional and psychological care of other people that are on scene. If possible, we should dedicate a member of the team to liaising with the patients next of kin and those on scene, and signposting them to further support networks. We should be debriefing most incidents, but we should take a special care to debrief these incidents with the whole team. Make sure you take care of your own emotional and mental health after these incidents, as well as supporting and signposting your colleagues who may also be struggling. The ambulance staff crisis phone line again is 0300 373 0898. We've included links to their website and their number in the information page of this podcast. But that's all for this month. We hope you agree that although that was a difficult topic to talk about, it was particularly useful to preparing us for the next time that we might encounter this situation. As always, you can find the links and references that we've used to compile this podcast on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. And we hope that you'll join us again next month.